Welcome to the Book Nook, where the lore hounds your guides to the Discworld. I'm John. And I'm Marilyn. And this is our coverage of the Discworld holiday novel, Hogfather, by Sir Terry Pratchett. We'll start off with some spoiler-free conversations about our thoughts on the book in general. Then we'll take a break and we'll move into a deeper conversation about whatever we want to talk about with the book. You know, the plot, (laughs) the themes, and uh, everything. While we enjoy discussing the book amongst ourselves, we also really want to hear from you too. So send us an email to book at thelorehounds.com or visit our website at thelorehounds.com slash contact. There you can find a contact form or you could leave us a voicemail by using the built-in device. Lastly, you can join us on our Discord server. We have a really fun and welcoming community and we have a dedicated channel for Booknote Conversations, listed in the show notes below. If you're enjoying this or any of our other podcasts, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It helps listeners find us amongst the various mythical realms of Discworld small gods. Stick around to the end of the podcast for programming notes about us and our two affiliates, properly Howard Film Reviews, and whatever Alicia has coming <laughs> next. Also, please consider subscribing to our Patreon if you want to support us for as little as $3 a month. You get ad-free episodes and much more. Patreon is a great way to help support us as our ad revenues are always going up and down. Now, Marilyn, the first thing I have to say to you is ho, ho, ho. (laughs) Oh, ho, ho, ho. Because that's what I I feel like death sounds like throughout this whole book. Well, it needs a little work, master. Oh, what a joy this book is, Marilyn. It is. It's just, it's delightful from beginning to end, even as it conveys some incredibly important truths. This is Sir Terry's gift. He can have you absolutely convulsed with laughter. And the next moment, there's a zinger that just goes right to your heart. Yep. And you're weeping with recognition and realization of, yeah, yeah, this is, this is it. This is true. Mm Mm-hmm. Marilyn, uh, we haven't really talked much between each other even about our histories with Discworld. So do you want to talk about your history with the the world, with Terry Pratchett in general? Sure. I was actually introduced to it um, by a listserv. There uh, was a listserv for Pagan Scholars, and several people mentioned it. And I said, well, what is What's the disc world? And all of a sudden, all these people are like, oh, it's this thing. And, you know, and this all these different series. And you have to, you can read them in order and they interface with one another. And there's witches and there's wizards and it's a magical world. But it's sort of like Tolkien, but not really. It's sort of like our own world, but not really. And as I read through them and got to know that there's certain series about certain characters. So there's a series about witches. There's a series about wizards. There's a series about the city of Ankh-Morpork. And you realize that he has this incredible gift of being satirical, but never cynical. Mm -hmm. That was really refreshing to me that you could gently make fun of and mock, or maybe not so gently, but at the same time, it wasn't out of a sense of sneering or distancing or, you know, making fun of. Yeah. It was, it was gently recognizing the foibles and follies of human beings, even though these are elves and dwarves and wizards and other creatures, you know, not just humans. But 
at, fundamentally at heart, they're really all various types of human beings. And mm -hmm. uh, it's lovely to see what he does. Yeah, Terry Pratchett to me is Kurt Vonnegut after therapy. He's, <laughs> he's uh, you know, Kurt Vonnegut, if he learned to like overcome some of his trauma and, and sort mm -hmm. of figure out that not the whole world is messed up. I mean, Kurt Vonnegut has this sort of pessimistic opt optimism too, where he's he's basically saying everything sucks, but let's try to be better anyway. And I think that Terry Pratchett has this worldview that's like a lot of things suck, but the world's overall pretty good, and we should keep trying to make it better. I think I think he, on balance, is a lot more positive than Vonnegut is. I would agree. Uh, he. He never entirely loses a sense of wonder. You can right. see it in little tiny bits here and there. And initially, I think the earlier books were not as good as the later ones. He grew into his craft. He grew into what he wanted to say. But he had he his he worked as a journalist for a long time, so the craft of storytelling was part of his day job, as it were. Um, he came from working class family, and so you can hear that experience and some of the anger that he had from that experience in some of the different scenes and so forth. Mm -hmm. But overall, somehow, however it was, he managed to keep this, uh, I, th I think I can say he kept his love for people and situations and the world in general um, and did his best to show how things could be in some respects. Yeah. Never forgetting that they can be, you know, pretty, pretty distressing at times. Yeah. And, and there is loss and so forth, but, um, but his sense of humor, his wit, his use of words, just marvelous. His use of footnotes. That's his, that's his <laughs> trademark. There's yes. two things stylistically that you need to know about Terry Pratchett. If yeah. you ever read his books, no, uh, he, he hates chapters, right? He, he will not do chapters unless explicitly required like yeah. he was with going postal and which honestly, sometimes I think is a detriment to the work, but, hmm. um, I, I, I know he just, he just hated chapters. And second is he loves a footnote. He yeah. uses them in the funniest ways. He'll just interrupt the sentence. He'll footnote a footnote. He does that in this yes. book once. Yes, yes, yes. And, uh, it's, it's lovely. It is. It is. And one of his best ways of, of interpolating humor. Yeah. No one knows how to use a footnote like Terry Pratchett. No. I've never seen it used this way. And he uses it instead of whether people might use parentheses. Right. So. Right. It's it's a lovely style. Although it does make it difficult when you're trying to uh, summarize something. <laughs> <laughs> I could imagine. I can imagine. So um, for, for me, I'm just going to say I, I never read a Discworld novel until two or three years ago. Mm -hmm. And I was looking for a palate cleanser because I had just finished... I think I did like a my first or second run through the Silmarillion mm. or uh, and, and some Wheel of Time too, something like that. Like I did some heavy reading and I said, I need something lighter. Can someone <laughs> recommend me something? Somebody mm -hmm. said, well, I like to put Discworld books between my epic fantasy. And huh. I was like, huh, that's that's a, an interesting idea. So I picked up Guards Guards and that was oh, my first good entry. One. Good one. And yeah, hilarious, amazing entry. I would recommend that as an entry to anybody. Even this mm -hmm. one, I think, is not a bad entry. I think uh, there's very few yes. bad entries to this series. Yeah, it all depends. Hot on, works. It all depends on how strongly you feel about reading things in sequence, because right. it is it is referential. The mm -hmm. the, the different uh, sub series do weave into one another. So you hear 
right. references to two or three of the major storylines in any particular book that you read. I started with um, Witches Abroad, which is an odd place to start because it's yeah. not the first of the Witches series. But I, I had this sort of sense that I really wanted to like this author. And I wasn't sure about city guards. I didn't, you know, it's like, I don't know. I did really, but witches of course were fine. And right. it was a perfect first book for me because the whole premise of it is the power of story. Okay. I haven't read that one. I've read the one. Before oh, it, well. which is, um, that is, uh, what's, what's the name of it? It's the Macbeth one. Weird sisters. Weird sisters. Yeah. That one's super good too. That's another good entry point for sure. But I, um, I actually wound up teaching bits of that in my uh, Women in Myth and Fairy Tale class one time or a couple of times. Oh, nice. Just, That's a good as, one to include, just yeah. as a means of saying, yes, stories have power and here's some examples. And I challenged people to, to see if they could name all of the different stories that they were specifically referring to hmm. throughout the course of action of the book. I'm not going to say much more because I don't want to spoil it for you, but I'll just say Gollum actually puts in an appearance. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I got to read this. I'm 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 up to it cuz I I read Equal Rights, I read Weird Sisters, mm -hmm, so I'm mm -hmm. up to this. Um if you are just coming to Discworld for the first time and you don't know what it is, Discworld is I think about 40 books written by Sir Terry Pratchett and they all take place on this one planet which is a flat disc that mm -hmm. sits atop four elephants mm -hmm. who which the four elephants sit atop a giant turtle, the great Atween. Mhm. Mm mm -hmm. So it's just a silly world. And he's like, I'm going to put all my stories on here. And most of Terry Pratchett's career, he wrote on the disc world. So there are different entry points. There are different sort of focal, focal points for this series. There's witches, guards, death. Um, and the Hogfather sits in the death line that mm -hmm. focuses on the death character. Death is not a villain in, no. you know, in, in Terry Pratchett's story. Death is a friend. You know, death is is your friend at the, at the end of your life. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so um, I really love that he made his, his Christmas novel, his holiday novel <laughs> all about death. One it's so death funny. Ones. Yes. Um, and honestly, I'm going to sort of segue into general impressions here. Sure. I was just blown away by this story. I thought it was fantastic. I haven't read a Discworld novel in a few months and I, I was I just felt right back in it, and I haven't read any of the other death novels, so this was my first oh. death novel. I've I've seen death, of course, in other novels. He shows up all the time. I think he's in every single one. Okay, that that would make sense. <laughs> yeah, but uh, it, it really, honestly, was a great introduction to the character because he was just so lovable. You know, he was just so mm -hmm. well intentioned, incompetent but also competent at the same time. I, I, it was just a great introduction. I find myself with Terry Pratchett. I don't usually like burst out in laughter, but I'm always chuckling. I'm chuckling through the whole book. Interesting. And that's, that's how I react to most British humor. I find mm -hmm. it's just constant chuckling. There are definitely some burst out loud laughing moments um, in a number of the books. The death series is my favorite one. And yeah. uh, the second or third book of the series is my favorite of the death series because of um, the humanity of it. Mm -hmm. But also it focuses around a, a pivot point 
it's speaking ritually speaking around the world you know the wheel of time there we go the wheel of the year (laughs) (laughs) um in this case um uh may day the first of may and dancing the morris dance and he talks about he being sir terry talks about the other morris dance that is danced at the opposite time of may day which is Samhain again, October mm. 31st, Halloween, and how you have to dance both. Otherwise, you can't dance either of them. Mm. Yeah, Interesting. Incredibly moving, incredibly moving, and uh, very uh, insightful. Nice. Yeah, well, um, this is the fourth book, I believe, in the death sequence. And I will link an image in the show notes that is a chart of where you can enter into these stories. Great. You can really kind of just pick them up wherever you find them, but sure. it, it certainly helps to know where they are in the timeline. And definitely uh, if you pick one up and you don't like it, put it down and try another one. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of variety. How many times have you read Hogfather, Marilyn? Oh, golly, John. I really don't know. Um, it's not like it's something I read every year. I do watch the the TV version of it every year have okay. done for a couple of years now. Um, but the book I'm less likely to, to read and reread. Um, hmm. So it might only be a handful of times. Okay. Well, this was my first one. So you've got a leg up on me. Oh, oh, wow. Good. I can't wait to hear your impressions. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, so you and I both read the book recently and then watched the TV adaptation, which I, I also didn't even know existed. I'm oh. always really nervous about TV adaptations of fantasy novels of because course. they're usually just like, especially early 2000s adaptations when it wasn't, you know, they're, they're dumping a bunch of money into this and they want to actually make it look great, like Game of Thrones and Rings yeah. of Power and Wheel of Time. Uh, early 2000s, I'm like, oh boy, this could be real bad. And it was really good. It was, I think yeah. there were parts where they could have cut some out, cut, cut some things out. And I think that they kept things because Terry Pratchett was involved. But overall, I think it worked really well. Yeah, I think what you just said, Terry Pratchett was involved, was one of the key reasons why it works so well. Right. He had a very direct involvement with the script. In fact, one of the credits in the opening scene says mucked about by Terry Mm, Pratchett. (laughs) That's funny. And he has a cameo. Oh, does he? Where is he? He's the toy maker. Is he? He is. Oh, that's so funny. I didn't realize that. And he also does a cameo in the other TV series he did, um, which is uh, Going Postal. Interesting. Yeah, I haven't seen that either. I did read Going Postal and I thought it was fun. Not my favorite work of his, but still very good. Yeah, it works very well as, as a TV adaptation. In case of Hogfather, there's only one major piece that I can think of that didn't make it into the, the uh, television series, which I understand. Um, mm-hmm. And there were one or two tiny changes that, that did some efficient cutting. Okay. So I think you'd have to have read slash watched both of them a couple of times before you. Yeah, can I'm, I'm not it. familiar enough with it to really pick those out. And I think that feeling of, of it goes on long uh, to me, that is generated in part by the way they cut back and forth so fast. Mm. That really, you know, it throws me out and I come back in again and suddenly I'm, I'm aware of how much time has passed. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you let it go for a long stretch of time, I'm inside the story that makes it easier 
to, to right. stay with it. And you think, oh my gosh, that was 15 minutes long. Wow, where did the time go? Okay. Well, if you are averse to reading and you're in the book nook by accident, you can watch <laughs> this about three hour series in three yeah. hours and it's not it's not so bad to get through. It's it's a really good adaptation. Like they have I think you said this, Marilyn, they got all the all the iconic quotes in there. Every yes. everything that you really need to get the punch of it is in there. Yes. Which but again, I would still recommend the book. Not surprising since, you know, Terry was overseeing it. Right. Right. He's like, you're going to change my dialogue? Absolutely not. <laughs> anyway. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I was I really love this book. I thought it was a lot of fun. I think it's a very unique take on Hogs Watch Christmas. You know, it's basically Christmas. If you I, I guess I should probably give a spoiler free synopsis or spoiler light I synopsis of the think beginning that would of be it, a good idea, which is just. A an assassin sets out to kill Santa Claus. Death fills in. <laughs> Yep. That's that's basically the premise of the book. Basically. Though, of course, it leaves out the reason why the assassin set out to kill. Yes, but yeah, you'll get there. You'll we'll get, we'll there. get into that. We'll get into that. All right. So, Marilyn, what were your general impressions of the book? Oh, it's delightful. And I, of course, you know, my love of mythology and, and tales and, and so forth and rituals um, really drew me in because it talks a lot about the origins of the Demiurge in the middle of winter and traces it all the way back in a very efficient and effective way to, um, you know, stone age peoples afraid that the sun would never come back offering a sacrifice. And so that very early on, it starts off saying sooner or later, all the stories are about blood and that image of blood on the snow, that's why Santa Claus or Hogfather wears red and white because it's it's symbolic of that. And they oh, wow. rapidly trace it all the way through um, the King of the Bean tradition where they bake a cake and there's a bean in it and everybody gets a slice and whoever has the bean is you know king for a day or a month or a year, depending upon your practice. And then at the end, he gets killed ritually. So again, this idea well, of sacrifice, dark. right? Well, sacrifice to ensure that things will continue. Right. And that's why one of the key phrases is we have to save the belief so the sun will come up. Mm -hmm. And, right. <laughs> you know, Susan, ever the rational says, of course, the sun's going to come up. It could not come up. And that's the differentiation, which Tolkien talked about the difference between the sun as a flaming ball of gas, which heats our world and the sun, which is life, which warms the world, which brings back uh, the grain and the corn and the plants and the food and, and all the rest of that. Right. Right. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it for spoiler free talk. If you have come this far, and you want to go watch it or read it before you join us on the spoiler takes feel free we're going to take a quick break when we get back we'll go full spoilers on the book And we're back on the book nook we are ready to talk about Sir Terry Pratchett's Hogfather in full all spoilers. If you want to just listen to the synopsis, then 
Stick around. Here we go. On the eve of Hogswatch, the Discworld equivalent to Christmas, a group of auditors hire a sociopathic assassin named Tea Time to kill the Hogfather. Tea Time and his crew steal the teeth of all the children of the world from the Tooth Fairy's world, using them to erase their belief in the Hogfather. Small gods fill the void in the Hogfather's absence. Death decides to fill in for the Hogfather to, sa- to help save belief in him and ensure the sun continues to rise. Death's granddaughter, Susan, defeats Tea Time in the uh, Tooth Fairy realm and leaves Banjo, one of Tea Time's henchmen, turned good to guard the teeth. Back in the real world, the auditors transform into wolves and attempt to take the Hogfather's soul, but are defeated by Death. Tea Time finds Death and threatens him and Susan with Death's sword, but Susan kills Tea Time with her fire poker that could only kill monsters. Hog's watch goes on and the sun rises. Well, I think that about covers it, so I guess the podcast is over. What more can we say? (laughs) Well, that's that's the basic premise, but I think this is... um, this is the kind of thing where the journey is much more important than the destination. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And yeah. And, and basically like you don't get much of anything by just that synopsis. Everything is about the little quips is about the awkwardness of death trying to go. Ho, 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 (laughs) ho, 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 you know, all, all the little things, uh, the the exchanges like uh you know they're in the poor family's house mm-hmm. and he's like well why can't i just give him his presents oh that wouldn't be right sir he's like mm-hmm. why not mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it's death is such a good choice to give that message because death is like i am the equalizer right i come for all i no am last things right <laughs> and uh yeah just just everything is is amazing in here the dialogue is fantastic all of the uh, the footnotes are are really enjoyable. Ignorance uh, was one of my favorite footnotes where he defines ignorance and he says, oh, well, that's that's when you know how to calculate this, but you don't know how to like survive in the wilderness. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Cultural, right. Cultural differentiation. Right. Yeah. And um, Alfred, who is uh, himself a wizard who by magical shenanigans is still alive after hundreds of years, only because he lives in death's world, which is timeless gets a dispensation to come and be the little pixie who is the Hogfather's aide. So is that why he's not able to come back to the real world except through the Hogfather's right. magic? Right, the, hog, the Hogfather's bubble. So if he comes back to the real world, he'll die? Is that the deal? Well, he'll his time will come closer to running out. You know, okay. he's, he's got his own. Death has time turners for everybody. And when the sands run out, he goes and he does his duty and, and releases your soul from your body. And then you go mm. on to something else and so alfred's time turner is you know kept very securely in uh death's hall of time turners but he has this dispensation to travel because they're in this sort of special magical time bubble how else could he get around the whole world in one night and give presents to everybody right right but alfred is concerned because he knows his master takes a great interest in these creatures that he works with, particularly humans. And as a situation arises, he tends to get so much more interested that he kind of loses track of who and what he is and what his mission is. And so when death starts to say, you know, this isn't fair and Alfred says life isn't fair. And and death says, well, why not? 
know, Alfred mm-hmm. is a little worried because, uh-oh, here we go again. Um, <laughs> he's trying to understand these beings that he works with and, and meets only at their end and, you know, one of the most significant times of their life, which is the end of it. Right. When, and, when nobody has to worry about it. it's kind of like when Ernie dies, the cart driver, uh, right. And, and death goes, he goes, well, I don't know what I'm going to tell my boss tomorrow. And death says, <laughs> well, on that note, I have good I have news, good for, news you. for you. Yes. I also have some bad <laughs> news for you. <laughs> And I, I love I love Death going, sorry, that was very rude of me. I wasn't listening. Yeah, right, right, right. Because he was thinking about what in the world is going on here. Yeah, yeah. Something we should explain about Susan. How can she be Death's granddaughter? Mm-hmm. Death in the earlier, in the first book about him, uh, hired an apprentice, a human apprentice. Death also had an adopted daughter. And we never really learned too much about the whys and hows of that situation. But as so often happens, you know, the two meet, they fall in love, they get married. Um, and through the course of the novel, Mort, the apprentice, um, becomes the Duchess, the, the du- Duke of Stolot. Hmm. And they have a daughter named Susan. And in thinking about her life, she didn't understand why her, their, her parents were so set upon having her be logical and distinguish reality from stories. She knew now that they'd been trying to protect her. She hadn't known then that her father had been death's apprentice for a while and that her mother was death's adopted daughter. She'd had a very dim recollections of being taken a few times to see someone who'd been quite well, jolly in a strange thin way. And the (laughs) visits, the visits had suddenly stopped. And she'd met him later, and yes, he had his good side. And for a while, she'd wondered why her parents had been so unfeeling. And she knew now why they'd tried to keep her away. It was far more to genetics than little squirmy spirals. She could walk through walls when she really had to. She could use a tone of voice that was more like actions than words, that somehow reached inside people and operated all the right switches. And her hair... That had happened only recently, though. It used to be unmanageable, but around the age of 17, she had found it more or less managed itself. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and they, they do that in the uh, the TV adaptation, too. They have her yes. hair just kind of move around. Yeah. And she says she'd been making good progress, though. She could go now for days without feeling anything other than entirely human. But it was always the case, wasn't it? You could go out into the world, succeed on your own terms, and sooner or later, some embarrassing old relative was bound to turn up. Mm-hmm. In the in the show, and I think more in the show than in the book, she's very Wednesday Adams. Yes, yes, she she the actress who does a fabulous job plays it very straight in a way, mm-hmm. uh, very kind of reserved and and yeah. Um, and I I didn't read Susan that way necessarily. I I thought no, I didn't had either. More emotion than that. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. So I think, I mean, it's maybe it's partly Michelle Dockery's interpretation. Yeah. Um, who, by the maybe way, maybe that's how Terry Pratchett saw it, right? And that's maybe we're that's the wrong. That's what he told one. her. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, could be. She played Lady Mary in um, Downton Abbey, by the way. So if people look at her and say, "Where did I see her before?" That's where. If you watch Downton, I, ha- I haven't Downtoned or Abbeyed. Well, there you go. <laughs> so yeah, there's. Plenty of stuff here. I think you and I are going to have a pretty freewheeling discussion here because it's yes. Hog's Watch, and we deserve some time to just chat. We do. We do. We do. So as far as your favorite scene, what would you say 
is is your you know number one if you were going to recommend people read one scene of this book and understand it what would you pick oh golly well the favorite scene is is the one at the towards the very end the whole point of it all so is Mm -hmm. that too much spoilery if i read that one no we're in full spoilers oh we're in full spoilers all right you're, you're on your own if you're still here okay folks you've been warned so this is the what it all means the the climax of this They've managed to restore belief in the Hawkfather to foil T-Time's nefarious plans to restore all the teeth to free them from the spell and get them taken care of by one of the former henchmen, Banjo, as you mentioned in your excellent summary. And Susan thinks, okay, we're good. I can go home. And suddenly her grandfather comes along and says, actually, no, they're still chasing him, they being the auditors. And by the way, the auditors are sort of non-entities. They only appear in gray robes. They do not recognize individuality. They talk in terms of we, even when there's only yeah. one of them. Can I can and, I ask you, are they in other Discworld books? Oh, yeah. Is this a recurring thing? Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A couple I of haven't them. seen them before. That's why I was asking. Okay. Well, they don't appear right away, but they do eventually. And uh, they're very fascinating because they feel that human beings are like fungus mm-hmm. on the world because they audit processes and things. You know, they, audit planets and they audit temperatures and they audit, you know, and human beings are messy. They're incalculable. They cannot be put into, you know, rows of numbers and columns of figures and so forth. So they're constantly trying to get around it. Yeah. I do love the scene where one of the auditors quotes a passage that says me in it. Yes. And they go, what you just said me. And he goes, well, I would never say that myself. Poof. And he goes away. (laughs) Right. They disappear, and then another one comes along, and let us right. let that be a lesson to us all. Individuality is death, and that's <laughs> that is kind of how they feel about things. So right. the auditors wanted to get rid of Hogfather, as we heard, and they're now feeling desperate, and so they do a very desperate act. They materialize, they turn into uh, wolves mm-hmm. or large dogs, if you prefer, and they're chasing the Hogfather, and Susan has to rescue the Hogfather, who is currently in the form of a boar, because Death says this is a human thing. I cannot help him, but you must. So she manages to rescue him, and then the dogs are left on the other side of this icy, cavernous gorge. And then Death comes along and tells the the auditors, okay, you made the mistake, you're going to pay for it. And so he, quote unquote, kills the forms that they're in, and they disappear. Mm-hmm. And so Susan comes and, back. And the uh, the excellent line, there's only one question left. Have you been, Have you been naughty, naughty or nice? nice? Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> <laughs> and so I love Susan's comment of, well, that about does it for this dress. <laughs> 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 but she's still saying, you know, why did we just go through all this? Of course, the sun is going to come up, and Death says, "I wish I had your education." <laughs> yeah, Death. And, you know what's funny is Death does not. He never really dunks on anybody. He just very coolly accepts when other people do something foolish and points it out. He's remarkably polite. Mm-hmm. He really is. You know, for someone who brings about somebody's end. Um, and he cares about his work. You know, the, the book opens with him at the bottom of the ocean. Uh, receiving the end of life of this tiny little delicate 
plant creature that is never going to see the light anyway and only live for about five days. But he's a consummate um, craftsperson. He mm -hmm. appreciates what he does and he does it uh, reliably and conscientiously. So Susan says, all right, I'm not stupid. You're saying humans need fantasies to make life bearable. Really? As if it was some kind of pink pill? No. Humans need fantasy to be human. To be the place where the falling angel meets the rising ape. Tooth fairies? Hogfathers? Little? Yes. As practice. You have to start out learning to believe the little lies. So we can believe the big ones? Yes. Justice. Mercy. Duty. That sort of thing. They're not the same at all. You think so? Then take the universe and grind it down to the finest powder and sieve it through the finest sieve and then show me one atom of justice. One molecule of mercy. And yet, death waved a hand, and yet you act as if there is some ideal order in the world, as if there is some, some rightness in the universe by which it may be judged. Yes, but people have got to believe that, or what's the point? My point, exactly. You need to believe in things that aren't true. How else can they become? said death hmm. have you ever read the book sapiens by yuval noah harari i feel like yes. this has come up in our conversations yes yes do you recall the portion where he talks about sort of how religions are more than just god more than just mm -hmm. traditional religions you need a symbol to have a mm -hmm. functioning society you need to mm -hmm. all believe that the American flag needs means something, that you know, freedom means something, things like that. Things that are icons and allow you to stay together in a cohesive group. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that reminds me very much of this, right? Is is you know, justice maybe it doesn't mean the same thing to everybody. <laughs> I, I certainly yeah. it doesn't. Yeah, for sure. But just the idea that we believe that there should be a right and a wrong that there mm -hmm. should be a judgment on what we perceive as evil mm -hmm. makes us better people. Yeah. Um, standards by which you can evaluate perhaps mm -hmm. be a way of thinking of it. And of course um, the, the sieve comment, you know, find me, find me a molecule of, of, of justice, of mercy. Um, that's, I think just, showing his worldview i i don't think that the whole world sees it that way i think that i think people of of various religions mm -hmm. would argue with that say well you know the tipping point is my deity um but i think terry pratchett is just saying like you know even if you don't believe in anything even if you don't believe that there is a god in the world you mm -hmm. believe in something and right. that belief is important right right i think what i get from this is that he is distinguishing the material from the non-material, mm -hmm. whether you call that spiritual or um, belief or emotion, whatever it happens to be. Right. That materially you cannot point to something and say, this is materially justice. 
justice is an idea. It's a concept. Right. And as you say, it can be a rallying point. It can also be a divisive point. It mm -hmm. can lead to slaughter and murder. So this is this is the the tipping point. This is the as he says, this is where the fallen angel meets the rising ape. What is it that makes us human? We're not going to be angels, but we're not going to be apes either because we can see these things. We can conceive of these things, even though there is no material evidence for them. You know, you look at the natural world. Is it just that a wolf will eat a baby rabbit? Mm -hmm. Probably not to the baby rabbit, probably to the wolf, particularly because the wolf is a mother and has nursing cubs to feed. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's um it's a really beautiful message at the end of this and it's much deeper than I thought I was going to get out of what was otherwise a pretty silly and fun novel. Yes. Right? Yes. And that that's I think a trademark of Pratchett too is he'll do the silly thing, but there is a point somewhere. Exactly. And, exactly. And there's a couple times in here I think, you know, when when they're talking about rich kids versus poor kids. And there's this point about, you know, the importance of stories, the importance of fantasy. I, I think that there's several really good points in this. Uh, you know, he even, he even pokes fun at consumerism. I'll, I'll go into my favorite scene oh, other, okay. other than the end. My favorite scene other than the end is the entire thing at, what was his name, Chumley? Crumley's Crumley. apartment store. Crumley, yes. yeah. Absolutely unforgettable. Amazing, you know, death shows up. <laughs> Albert says, let's do a public appearance. Right. And <laughs> death like, yeah, all right. Ho, ho, ho. What do you want? <laughs> and I love how at first, and they actually change this in the in the show a little bit. He's he's kind of opposed to him right away in the show. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the book, I think he's a little more like, all right, well, we got a hug father here or whatever. And as soon as he realizes, oh, he's giving things away. <laughs> and it's not even my merchandise. Yep. He's like, I am so screwed. When he goes, it's not about giving everything away. Well, it is, but you have to buy it first. It really gets to the heart of like, okay, consumerism, consumerism, consumerism. consumerism. Absolutely. Uh, there's there's that great scene in there where he gives the girl a sword. <laughs> and the yep. mom says, you, you can't give her a sword. Mm-hmm. Well, why not? I think it'll be a good learning experience. <laughs> you know, I don't remember the exact dialogue, but there's, there's good stuff. And he finally decides, all right, fine, I'll turn it wooden. But yeah, there's just so many good bits in there. Uh, I love the watch showing up. And, yes. And they, uh, they go, well, has he committed a crime? Oh, he's giving merchandise away. Oh, he's stealing your merchandise and giving it away? <laughs> no, he's just giving other things away. So you want us to arrest the That's hog fun. father? On Chris on on Hog's watch for giving presents away. Yes, <laughs> with all the children watching. Right, right. <laughs> um, you think it might look bad? Yeah. Hog to think how it would look good, sir. <laughs> I love the watch. I love especially knob, uh, knob, knobby knobs, knobs. Yeah, yeah. he's delightful. He's he's, delightful. he's so funny, and I I do think they went a little over the top on the teeth in the show, but on the on the false teeth, but. I, I guess that's the vibe you're supposed to get from him anyway. The false teeth being on Navi. On oh Navi. yeah. Yeah. Well, they give it was him really, really protruding front teeth. 
Well, the thing is, as you read other novels, the descriptions of Nobby Nobbs make it, one of the things he says is he had to have a, a science certificate saying that he was in fact human <laughs> because he looks so different. You know, his, his height and his physical features and mm -hmm. just all sorts of things make him very bizarre. I think that was about the closest they could come without really getting into some tricky territory. Yeah. Um, but he's, you know, he's a sharp one from way back. And, yeah. Um, I got to get back to my watch novels so that I can find out what happens to Carrot. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> I have a feeling there's Captain a lot Carrot. of big things there. Captain uh, Carrot is pretty amazing. Coming on, yeah. So which one are you reading right now? Oh, I haven't. I've only read Guards, Guards out of the watch. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. 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 I, out of well, Discworld, I've read Guards, Guards, Going Postal, uh, the first two Witches novels, mm -hmm. this, and... Uh, I started Small Gods, but I couldn't get into it. I'm going to go back eventually. Small Gods is an excellent one um, because of some of the things I bring up. But you also get to see the childhood of uh, Havelock uh, Veterinary, mm -hmm. who eventually becomes the, the benevolent dictator. Mm. Okay. And, of course, he goes to the School of Assassins because that's where all the really you know, top drawer people go. <laughs> and, and the poor people. I mean, it's definitely a send-up of Oxford and Cambridge. Okay. But let's bracket that for a minute because can I, I read the description yes. of when the, the sled arrives? Please at do. There, sweating and grunting in the place where the little piggies had been were, well, he assumed they were pigs because hippopotamuses didn't have pointy ears and rings to their noses. But the creatures were huge and gray and bristly and a cloud of acrid mist hung over each one. And they didn't look sweet. There was nothing charming about them. One turned to look at him with small red eyes and didn't go oink, which was the sound that Mr. Crumley, <clears throat> born and raised in the city, had always associated with pigs. It went gnark. The sled had changed, too. He'd been very pleased with that sleigh. It had delicate silver curly bits on it. He personally supervised the gluing out of every twinkling star. But the splendor of it was lying in glittering shards around a sleigh that looked as though it had been built of crudely sawn tree trunks laid on two massive wooden runners. It looked ancient, and there were faces carved in the wood, nasty, crude, grinning faces that looked quite out of place. Parents were yelling and trying to pull their children away, but they weren't having much luck. The children were gravitating toward it like flies to jam. Mr. Crumley ran toward the terrible thing, waving his hands. Stop that! Stop that! He screamed. You're frightening the kiddies! He heard a small boy behind him say, They've got tusks! Cool! His sister said, Hey, look, that one's doing a wee! <laughs> Tremendous cloud of yellow steam arose. Look, it's going all the way down the stairs. All those who can't swim, hold on to the banisters. They eat you if you're bad, you know, said a small girl with obvious approval. All up, even the bones, they crunched them. <laughs> a red and white figure pushed its way past through the crush and rammed a false beard into Mr. Cromie's hands. That's it, said the old man in the hogfather costume. I don't mind the smell of oranges and the damp trousers, but I ain't putting up with this. He stamped off through the queue. Mr. Cromie heard him add, and he's not even doing it right. Mr. Cromie forced his way onward. <clears throat> It's funny, it's much closer to the book than I remembered it. Because <laughs> I, I just watched the, I finished the TV movie yeah. uh, <clears throat> a little earlier today. And oh, it, it's, it's, it's practically It's much closer, working. yeah. Yeah, than yeah, I remembered yeah, yeah, yeah. it. 
but yeah, I, I mean, I really liked the the mall Santa getting all pissed and <laughs> running away, uh, and just just every time Death gets one of the children on his knee, he goes, "Ho ho ho, <laughs> say thank you," and the thank thank you. <laughs> Why are your hands on bits of string, child? The child looked down the length of its arms to the dangling mittens affixed to its sleeves. It held them up for inspection. Clubs, it said. <laughs> I see. Very practical. <laughs> he are is you, very polite. Are you real? Said the bobble hat. What do you think? The bobble hat sniggered. I saw your piggy do a wee, it said. And implicit in the tone was the suggestion that this was unlikely to be dethroned as the most enthralling thing the bobble hat had ever seen. Oh, uh, good. It had a great big, what do you want for hog's watch? Said the hog father hurriedly. Mother took her economic cue again and said briskly, she wants a, the hog father snapped his fingers impatiently. The mother's mouth slammed shut. <laughs> the child seemed to sense that here was a once in a lifetime opportunity and spoke quickly. I want an army. And a big castle with pointy bits, said the child. And a sword. What do you say? Prompted the hogfather. A big sword? Said the child after a pause for deep cogitation. That's right. As opposed to thank you, Uncle Hoey said. Are you sure? People don't, normally. I meant they thank the hogfather, Alfred hissed. Which is you, right? Yes, of course, <clears throat> You're supposed to say thank you. Thank you. And be good. This is part of the arrangement. Yes. Then we have a contract. <laughs> it's so formal. Yeah, it's and so formal. Pulls out the castle and the sword and everything else. And you know, the mother's, you can't give her that. It's not safe. It's a sword. It's not meant to be safe. <laughs> It'll be educational. What does she cuts herself? That will be an important lesson. Yeah. And then Alfred tells him and he says, oh, well, it's not for me to argue, I suppose. And the blade went wooden. So uh, this whole thing with the assassins, tea time in general, I think we just have to have to address it head on. Tea time, yeah. Teatame, te <laughs> Teatama, whatever he wants to be called. Teatina. He, he's, <laughs> he's so funny. Uh, he honestly, he was much creepier in the show yes, he than was. he was in the book. I did not see him as Johnny Depp, Willy Wonka, like he was in the show. Mm. He was very like, hi, hello. And I, I think it honestly was too much. I mm. think it took me out of it sometimes, but I don't mm. know. How do you feel? Well, I was really creeped out the first time I saw the show and you know, all the shadowy things and whatever. I mean, it, it gets better with rewatching, but. Yeah, it, they made it very scary, which they were supposed to do. I mean, the Tooth Fairy's Castle is is all the child's mm -hmm. understanding of what the world is like. And a child's world is full of very scary things and yeah. things that are not explained. And so, um, you know, I think the fact that the assassins themselves were rather afraid of tea time should mm -hmm. have given us a clue. Yeah. I mean, it opens by saying that they took him in as a charity case because both his parents were dead. And then the parenthesis. Yeah. <laughs> after, after some consideration, they realized that perhaps they should have explored this a bit more thoroughly. Right. <laughs> right. It's funny because that, that, by the end of that line, I was sold on the book. You know, like that was, yes. that's just, it's such yeah. a good opener. 
It absolutely is. It's wonderful. And, you know, the, the Assassin's Guild was one of the inspirations of Lord Vetinari, who doesn't even get name checked in this book, mm-hmm. but he's, he's the benevolent dictator who took on a city that was in chaos and basically set up a bunch of guilds and said things like, okay, we're going to have a thieves guild mm-hmm. because they're going to be thieves regardless. So let's make them a guild. Let's give them, you know, some order and, and requirements and, you know, rich people can pay a fee once a year. And, and if a thief tries to knock them over, then they can pull out their card and say, nope, sorry, I paid it for the year. Find somebody else. I mean, things that at first glance seem, oh, really horrible, make a certain kind of sense. Mm-hmm. And only the kind of sense that a Terry Pratchett could see. Right. So the assassins, um, Fetinari was himself trained in the assassin school. It's basically modeled after Eton or Oxford or Cambridge or whatever. Mostly the, the children of very, very rich families come get the very best education and, oh, by the way, learn how to kill people quietly and efficiently <laughs> for a fee, for a consideration. Again, very structured. Um, but they do occasionally take on what they call charity cases. And I'm sure those individual students love to be called charity cases. It definitely doesn't help their villain origin story, right? <laughs> like tea time. No. Well, exactly. Exactly. And even even at the beginning, you have the the uh, I forgot his title, but the head of the assassins going, yeah, Lord I'm going to have to I'm going to have to quietly get rid of this guy. This is going to become a problem. Right. Well, when you're when you're told that you're going to be paid three million dollars to eliminate the Hogfather, you want to find somebody right. <clears throat> to at least make the attempt. Right. And if this particular one gets killed, the bargain. Oh, well, what a shame. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. He sends he sends him out to fail, and he he was actually the person for the job. And he nearly succeeded. He almost succeeded. He almost succeeded. But this this gives you the flavor of Lord Downey, who's the head of the Assassins Guild, which is the one that runs the school. Mm-hmm. And he hears someone clearing their throat. Downey stopped writing, but did not raise his head. Then, after what appeared to be some consideration, he said in a business-like voice, The doors are locked. The windows are barred. The dogs do not appear to have woken up. The squeaky floorboards haven't. Other little arrangements, which I will not specify, seem to have been bypassed. That severely limits the possibilities. I really doubt that you are a ghost. And guards generally do not announce themselves so politely. You could, of course, be death. But I don't believe he bothers with such niceties. And besides, I am feeling quite well at the moment. Hmm. <clears throat> Something hovered in air in front of his desk. My teeth are in fine condition, so you are unlikely to be the tooth fairy. I've always found that a stiff brandy before bedtime quite does away with the need for the sandman. And since I can carry a tune quite well, I suspect I'm not likely to attract the attention of old man trouble. Hmm. I suppose a gnome could get through a mouse hole, but I have traps down. Downey went on. Bogeymen can walk through walls, but would be very loath to reveal themselves. Really, you have me at a loss. Hmm? And then he looked up and saw the auditor, who didn't answer any of those descriptions. So mm-hmm. that's why none of his little traps were, uh, were set off. <laughs> but I love that one sentence. The squeaky floorboards haven't. Right. <laughs> Yeah, there's so many good one-liners in this. 
and uh you know even even like these you know he does a really good job of showing like the contradictions within individuals right you have tea time playing with the dog he goes you get along with dogs huh oh yeah i, li- I like him he seems to like me i heard you killed the dog on your last job <laughs> it's like yeah well i couldn't have him barking he's like you didn't want to like drug him or any any other option besides right 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 uh yeah he's like oh, i didn't think of it it lacked elegance and he and he promises elegance for uh the uh the hogfather job did it have elegance i i don't know did it <laughs> well i mean in tea times estimation who knows he was certainly yeah. aiming for that and it's really fascinating to see him in a student professor relationship where he's mm-hmm. definitely lower down and saying things like, you know, I, I, I appreciate any correction and I always want to improve. Right. Thank you for showing me there in my ways. And then he utterly dominates his little band. Right. He tries to dominate Susan, but Susan being a governess gets his number. Right. Because she realizes that you're the little boy that looked up dolls dresses, you know, and finally gets under his skin so that he's getting angry. And says something to the effect of, well, it's all right. I I have my inner child well contained or whatever. And when she starts to irritate him and and annoy him and so forth, and he's getting more and more edgy, and she's saying these things about, you know, you looked up dolls' dresses and nobody liked you and you were the weird kid. And then she says to him, he, he tries to kill her with death's sword, but in this child's world, death does not exist. Right. If people die, they disappear. So he tries to kill her and it doesn't work. And she says, hello, inner child. I'm the inner babysitter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that knocks him right over the the side of the very tall part of the staircase. And he, Not uh, a very good babysitter, apparently. <laughs> Knocking well, the children off the... <laughs> I think the I think the response is appropriate to the individual. Though, yeah, huh? no, for sure. I'm just I'm just making a little joke here. <clears throat> I know, I know. So, speaking of the Tooth Fairies domain, what'd you think of it? What's uh, it's it's an interesting concept for sure that you can control children through their teeth. As she says, ancient magic, ancient, 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 and they allude to it a little bit when Arch Chancellor Ridcully. We haven't talked about the wizards at all, mm-hmm. but how do you talk about them? <laughs> they're so they're so ah, bizarre. They're just very strange. That he's had this new bathroom opened up for his private use, right. and he's cutting his toenails afterwards. And he said, you know, you can't be too careful. Somebody gets a toenail, right. and they can have power over you. And that right. that's, as Susan says, that's so ancient, mm-hmm. you can hardly call it magic. It's yeah. just... Yeah. I've, I've already added knows. a subject after this now, which is the small gods that pop up. The O-gods. Oh, yes. I, I think of them more as... Well, they call them demiurges. A lot of them are, are like fairy folk. Or, I mean, it's mm-hmm. a gnome. It's not a god per se. The O god is the closest thing we get to, to new deities. Right. But, uh, yeah, because there's so much belief sloshing all around. Oh, we haven't even talked about Hex, the thinking machine. Right. right, ah, right. What a send up on, on computer nerds and, uh, <laughs> you know, AI. I mean, here's, here's right. the very beginning, very early discussions of AI and what that might look like and the fact that he tells the thinking machine to believe in the Hogfather so that belief is continuous. And then the next thing you know, the thinking machine is writing him a wish list for Christmas. <laughs> and Hogfather says, Oh no, you can't. Oh, I suppose that's not right. You can write, can't you? <laughs> <laughs> All right. How old are you? And have you been a good little 
thinking machine. <laughs> Great interaction. Yeah. Yeah. But as as Ponder Stibbins points out very proudly, Hex does solve it. Mm-hmm. All this extra belief washing around goes somewhere. So whenever suddenly somebody names an imaginary figure like the Veruca gnome or the hair loss fairy or the eater of socks right. or the oh god of hangovers. The oh god of hangovers cracked me up. You just, get a little just constantly walking around vomiting. Yeah. <laughs> and the next thing you know, there's an oh god of hangovers. Yes, he was very well conceived. And also in the in the TV, I particularly liked the fact that he spoke with a Welsh accent. <laughs> okay, I didn't pick up on that. And he's Very got his delightful. toga. He's he looks like a frat boy. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. A, a, you know, from a, one of the Greek pantheon. Because yeah, I, I love this whole. I've never even had a drink, and <laughs> yes, over the whole time. <laughs> and as soon as he gets sober, all he wants to do is get me six pints of ale and this right. and that and the other thing. And says, "I didn't sober you up so you could get drunk again." Right. Right. A lot of really fun characters in here, um, and. Honestly, we could probably talk about Discworld all night, but of course this is this is a fun a fun filled holiday romp. <laughs> yeah, and uh, prepare to do a lot of laughing, whether yeah. it's chuckling or out loud or gasping for breath. I think it can produce all of those effects. Right. Well, Marilyn, it's been a pleasure hogfathering with you, <laughs> and I hope people will check this out if they haven't. There's so oh, much absolutely. in here. There's so much in Discworld in general. I think we're in talks. Maybe we'll do some kind of Discworld theme book nook thing eventually. I'm yeah, not sure fun. if it's going to be the next thing we do, but I think that there's plenty there for us to dig into. Oh, unquestionably. Unquestionably. I mean, one could do an entire Discworld podcast, and I'm sure people have. But yeah. Uh, yeah. it'd be nice to, to select the, the really the finest ones, although there's a Hobson's Choice right there. How do you? <laughs> well, actually, that's not true. There are some that. I, I read the very first two or three once and thought, okay, that's enough. You know, I got some of the okay. background of how this or that happened, but you know, there's other better ones. Right. Well, all right. I want to do a quick intro outro here. Rather we're going out, not in. Yes. All right. We've got our two affiliate podcasts, properly Howard movie review. They just did their season of remakes and now they are on the severance feed where they're covering season one of Severance every Friday. And you can catch us on that feed starting in season two. We'll be covering the show in full with them. So definitely check that out. Also, don't forget to check out our Star Wars holiday special coverage that we did with them because it was a lot of fun. I think even if you didn't watch it, it's a fun podcast. And uh, yeah, I hope you'll check that out. Alicia is currently covering Beacon 23, which is a show on MGM+. Plus. I guess you can get the first episode free on Amazon, I think. So check that out. It's by Hugh Howie, who also did Silo. He was the author behind Silo. So if you like that show, you'll probably like this. I know people are loving it. Alicia is having a great time. She's doing coverage, I think, every other episode, something like that. Mm -hmm. So subscribe to Bullshift Dust. You can find all these feeds in the show notes. Uh, as far as the Lorehounds, we've got a lot of little projects coming out for the rest of the year. So you've got Hogfather now. You've got our second breakfast on Christmas that will be public. Usually that's just a Patreon exclusive benefit, but we wanted to give our top 10 list for the year to the public, and we'll be talking about all our favorite TV for the year. And Marilyn, you were on that because we are yes. doing our interviews with our Istari. We're doing for patrons. We took a community survey where we got people's opinions and we're going to present some stats. So there's going to be a lot of fun stuff here. 
It's going to be a lot of fun talk about the best TV of the year. Uh, and of course, we've got a bunch of other stuff coming out this month. Skyrim with me and Brandon is finally coming out. We've got uh, another Earthsea episode. If you yes. like this, if you want more books, we've got another Earthsea episode probably out by now. And uh, yeah, hope you'll join us on that one. Very quickly, I want to talk about our patrons. I mentioned our patrons got to do a community survey for our for their top 10 of the year. I think that was a lot of fun. We like to give a lot of benefits to our patrons. We have a tier as low as $3 a month, but we also have a tier that's 10 bucks a month. That's our top tier patrons. They are our lore masters. They are the ones uh, helping us support our network tremendously. So they get a shout out every episode. They are Samartian, Cyrus, Mark H, Michael G, Michelle E, David W, Brian P, Nick W, SC, Peter OH, Bettina W, Adam S, Nancy M, Lavinia T, Dove 71, Brian 8063, Frederick H, Sarah L, Gareth C, Eric F, Matthew M, Sarah M, DJ Miwa, Andra B, Kwang Yu, Laura G, Dead Eye Jedi Bob, Nathan T, Alex V, Aaron T, Sub Zero, Aaron K, and Adrian, who will always be last on the list because he requested it. All but right. Never least. <laughs> Marilyn, it's always fun t- chatting with you, especially about books. And uh, yes. I can't wait to see what we're going to do in the new year. Oh, all kinds of interesting things are on, on the way, I suspect. All right. Uh, all right. I'll see you then. Yes. Good night. The Lorehounds podcast is produced and published by The Lorehounds. You can send questions and feedback and voicemails at thelorehounds.com slash contact. Get early and ad-free access to all Lorehounds podcasts at patreon.com slash the Lorehounds. Any opinions stated are ours personally and do not reflect the opinion of or belong to any employers or other entities. Thanks for listening.